So my name is Michaela, and this is Elena, and we're up here on behalf of the women's basketball team uh, to talk to you guys about Destiny Rescue. So they're a nonprofit organization that works to save children out of sex trafficking. And for the past four years, our team has had the opportunity to be able to partner with them, um, and it's been really amazing with being able to raise money and awareness for this cause. So last year, throughout the whole entire Crossroads League, women's basketball um, raised enough money to save 17 children. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. It takes, it costs about $1,500 just to save one child, and IWU alone raised enough to save seven children. So that's pretty awesome. But this year we have a new goal to raise even more money to save even more children. So um, what Destiny Rescue does is they have volunteers who go into these countries, into the cities, and they actually go into the brothels and um, they try to create relationship for these children and um, they try to make them feel like. Um, Destiny Rescue is a safe place and that they're able to trust them um, and then once the Lord provides an opportunity for them to be rescued um, then Destiny Rescue works to restore them mentally, physically and emotionally and they also provide some trade skills so that they can go back and they can support their family when they go back so that's, th that's what Destiny Rescue does. Um, there's a few ways that you can be part of that Destiny Rescue mission. Uh, the first is that you can actually make a donation to Destiny Rescue. The second is that you can buy jewelry that's handmade from the uh, children that have been rescued from the sex trafficking ring. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 11:28 through 30. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. So what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of anything? Um, as I was getting ready for this thing today, I, I got on the internet and I found a Gallup poll of the top 10 fears of Americans. So to get us going here, as I read what these top 10 fears of Americans are, I want you to be honest, raise your hand so everyone can see if that's what you're afraid of. All right, I know some of you are getting afraid now of whether you're gonna raise your hand or not. So that's good, we're off to a good start. First thing, are you afraid of snakes? That's the, ten, the number one fear of Americans is snakes. Number two, my hand's down. I'm not, well, yeah, I'm afraid of snakes. Number two, public speaking. Anyone? If you've had communications class yet, you'll find out. Third one is heights. That's a big one for me. I get sick just watching TV when they're in high places, let alone actually in a high place. That's one for me. Being closed in small spaces. Anyone? Yeah, lots of you with that. Luckily, we have large residence hall rooms here. How about spiders? Anyone afraid of spiders? Yeah, that's number five. Number six, actually spiders are fun for me because I'm not and I have two daughters that are. So killing spiders in a napkin and then throwing the napkin at your daughters is a fun thing. So make a note of that. The sixth thing is needles, getting shots. Anyone not like getting shots? All of these people got the flu this year because they didn't get their flu shot. Next one, flying on airplanes. Anyone afraid of airplanes? Nah, you're, yeah, you're, you're young in 21st century. You're not afraid of planes anymore. How about mice? Anyone afraid of mice? Cute little things and people are afraid of them. How about the dark? This is number nine, the dark. Yes, okay. Hopefully you'll grow out of that at some point. And then the last one is an interesting to me, thing to me. And I've got to tell you a little story before we get to the last one. Um, about a month and a half ago, we had this holiday called Christmas. And Adam Myers, who is our director of Campus Rec, I don't know if you know Adam, he's a big white elephant guy. And he came up to my office one day and said, I've been waiting to give someone this gift. 
And I think this gift is perfect for you. It's a white elephant gift. So I want you to have this gift. This gift happens to be number 10. 10 thing that Americans are most afraid of are clowns. They're afraid of, anyone here afraid of clowns? We all have fears, right? I think everybody raised their hand. And if you didn't, you're a liar. You need to be afraid of that. Right? We all have fears. But these are all, these are all fears of things. Fears of things. What I want to talk about today are not fear of things, but fear, fear of what's in our heart. An inner fear. The inner fears that sometimes we struggle with. My first 11 years, my 24th year, 21st year at Indiana Wesleyan, my first 11 years at Indiana Wesleyan, I was head baseball coach. And one of my first years, uh, one of my first recruited classes, I had a, a guy from, from that state up north who I recruited because I show grace to people who are from that state. And he came down, and he was a class, if you know anything about baseball, he was a classic second baseman. Uh, little guy, gritty, tough as nails, worked harder than anybody else. He'd run through a brick wall if you asked him to, and he'd run through a brick wall if you didn't ask him to. He wanted to do everything right. He wanted to please. He wanted everybody to like him. I never had to ask him to do something more than once. Well, he wasn't a great player his freshman year. But because he worked so hard, I gave him the role of being our courtesy runner. Now, the courtesy runner, his job is when the catcher or the, first ba- or catcher or the pitcher get on base, he goes and runs for him. So his job is to run bases. And he was fast, so yeah, okay, he'll be fine. Well, that year, one of our big goals as a team was we wanted to be the best dirt ball read team in the country. Now, dirt ball read is if you watch baseball, a pitcher throws a pitch, the ball hits the dirt before it gets to the catcher and kind of sprays out. You see catchers trying to block it. That's a dirt ball. We wanted to be the kind of team when we were on base, if a pitcher threw a dirt ball, we'd read that early and bam, we'd take off and go to the next base. So Matt being Matt, was always ready to go, always ready to go. Well, there was one game, we were at Grace College, first game of a doubleheader, he gets on first base three times because our catcher walked three times. Three times in the first game, Matt let off first base, pitcher threw a pitch, bam, strike right down the middle, and there goes Matt off to second base, thrown out by like 15 feet. Matt, dirt ball means the ball has to hit the dirt. Matt was overzealous, he was going. Well, he'd go back to the dugout by the third time, you can imagine what his teammates were saying to him. And it wasn't, oh, that's okay, Matt. You'll do better next time. That's not what they were saying to Matt. So Matt was kind of down. He could see the fear growing in his eyes. Well, we get to game two. And Matt gets to second base. And I called Matt over to the time. And I said, Matt, you're not being aggressive. Stop being afraid. This kid throws a lot of curveballs. Read it. And if it's in the dirt, get here. So the very next pitch, as, as luck has it, kid throws a pitch in the dirt. Catcher doesn't block. It goes off to the right. And Matt's down here like this, and he's just not moving. He's literally like this. So I see him. I said, Matt, go! So all of a sudden, he goes. And he's coming, and he's running, and he dives head first, And he stops five feet from third base, laying in the dirt. <laughs> third baseman gets the ball, tags Matt out. Why did Matt get out? Matt had become paralyzed. Paralyzed by his fear. Paralyzed for his fear. What was that fear? Was it a fear of getting out? Well, maybe it was a fear of getting out. But what it really was for Matt was a fear of failure and a fear of rejection. He had already experienced his teammates being mad at him. He didn't want to experience that anymore. He was afraid of being rejected by his teammates because that was important to Matt. Matt wanted to please me as his coach, 
I just told him, you need to go if it's in the dirt. Matt didn't want to fail me as a leader in his life. So Matt was afraid to fail. The result was he was paralyzed by fear. He couldn't handle the fear that had taken over his life at that point. Have you ever found yourself in that situation, unable to get anything done because you had convinced yourself that failure was inevitable? Or have you gotten to the point where you didn't know how to interact with the people that were the most important people in your life, the people that you love, because you were convinced that they weren't going to see you for the person that you were, but reject you because you couldn't live up to the expectations that somehow you had convinced yourself were on you. So the result was paralysis. So what does God say about the paralyzing fear of failure and rejection? Well, if you look in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, he says, not, Fear not, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will uphold you. Several years later, my last year coaching, actually, I coached a young man named Brandon Beachy who went on and played professional baseball. Summer after his sophomore year, Brandon is the oldest child of seven kids. And he was a prototypical oldest child. There are probably a lot of oldest children in here. He was mature for his age. He was responsible. He was driven. He was a perfectionist. He was good at everything and took being good at everything very seriously. That was him, oldest child. Well, the summer after his sophomore year at Indiana Wesley, he's from Kokomo. They lived in a farmhouse out in the outskirts of Kokomo. There are outskirts of Kokomo, by the way. Um, and they were celebrating 4th of July. And that summer, Brandon worked at TNT Fireworks. And he had gotten a bunch of freebies. So he had a big stack of fireworks in his house. And he was with his entire family. And they were celebrating 4th of July. And he thought it would be funny to light a smoke bomb and throw it behind his little brothers to see a reaction of it. So he was standing in the doorway of his house, lit the smoke bomb, got ready to throw it, threw it. Gust of wind came up, blew the smoke bomb back into his house and landed on his pile of fireworks. 15 minutes later, his 100-plus-year-old farmhouse was ablaze. Half hour after that, Brandon had third-degree burns on his back, his shoulders, bottom of his feet because he had been running in and out to try to save as much of his family's things as he could before the house burned. This was after he got the garden hose and tried to put a house fire out with it. That summer, nobody was hurt except for him. That summer, a lot of people who cared about Brandon, knowing who Brandon was, spent a lot of time going and talking to him, making sure he was okay. His family made sure they communicated to him, Brandon, it's okay, it was an accident. It's okay, it was an accident. I can remember with my wife, my wife and I going over to see him because they were spread out all, there were a lot of people in the family. They were living in a, in uh, his grandfather's uh, motorhome, it parked in the driveway, and they were spread all over the place. They had nowhere to go. They didn't have full insurance on the house. So my wife and I went to see him. We were talking to him, and I asked him, Brandon, are you okay? This is okay. And he said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm healing. No, I'm not talking about your physical burns, Brandon. I'm talking about, are you okay? Yeah, coach, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. So good. Well, we get back to the fall of his junior year now after that summer fire accident. We start fall baseball. And it becomes quite evident pretty early that Brandon's not the same guy. Brandon was a leader. But Brandon wasn't a leader at the beginning of that fall, that junior year. He had withdrawn. He was not interacting with anybody. 
He was isolating himself. About halfway through fall baseball, we were having batting practice out in the cages, and it was Brandon's turn. He was with a group of about five guys, a couple freshmen in his group. He was having a particular tough day in the batting cage that day. He wasn't having a good round. And for a perfectionist driven guy, you can imagine how frustrating that is. I could see the frustrating building up and frustration building up in Brandon's face. Finally, he had two good swings right in a row. So at that point, I said, Brandon, get out of there. I knew he needed to end on a good one, and he'd never get out of there if I didn't get him out of there. So I got him out of there. A little freshman guy, not Matt, another freshman, going in after him, trying to be a good guy, said, hey, good, strong finish, Beach. Nice job. And I mean, Brandon proceeded to just light that kid up. Just got in his face and was ripping him for, don't be talking to me. That was not a good round. I'm terrible. And you just get in there. I mean, just lit the poor kid up. So I was kind of taken aback by that. And I called Brandon over. I said, Brandon, you need to come see me after practice. So practice ends. Brandon comes to my office. He sits down. We shut the door. I said, and all I said, I said three words. I said, what's going on? Didn't get a word out edgewise. He just started bawling. Just broke down. Just broke down and cried and cried. This kid who doesn't cry. So we sat there. I hugged him. 15 minutes, he just cried. Couldn't say anything. As we began to talk, when he finally came out of that and we started to talk, realized that he had been holding on to the guilt. He had been holding on to the shame of what he looked, as he worded it, ruining his family's lives. And even though his family had shown him grace, he had not been able to accept grace. And he had been living in fear of shame and fear of condemnation. He was the oldest son. It was his responsibility. And he had failed in that responsibility. And he was full of shame. And was fearing shame. You know, we don't want to let our families down. We don't want to open ourselves up to being judged sometimes. Because our identity and self-worth is caught up in the image of what the world has convinced us is what we're so supposed to be. So what do we do? When we're like Brandon and we fear shame, we fear condemnation, we fear that living up to that false identity that the world has given to us, we withdraw and we isolate ourselves from all those who love us. And most importantly, we isolate ourselves from the God who loves us unconditionally and created us in his image. Now, the Brandon story ends, ends well. Over the course of that year, his junior year, he realized that he had this fear and started getting help. And started allowing people into his life and started accepting the fact that he could not do this alone. That he needed people who loved him and a God who loved him in his life to help him deal with this fear. And he becomes a success story. Less than 10 months after he burned his family's house down, he signed a professional contract with the Braves. Three years after that, he got his first call up to pitch in Philadelphia's Veterans Stadium for the Atlanta Braves in a Major League Baseball game. First and only guy to ever play Major League Baseball at Indiana Wesleyan. His third year of professional baseball with the Braves, he was having an incredible first half of the year. He was leading the National League in ERA. And many people were talking about the fact that he was probably going to get invited to the Major League All-Star game at the break. And he was pitching in the game, pitching really well. And all of a sudden, about the fourth inning of that game, he felt something in his elbow. And they had to take him out. And he had torn, excuse me, athletic trainers, if I get this wrong, the ulnar collateral ligament is UCL in his elbow, which requires Tommy John surgery. 
Just as his career was at its pinnacle, the highest level that no one ever thought he would get, it was over. He went through rehab for 18 months, came back, pitched in a few games, tore it again. And I remember calling him and talking to him after the second time. I said, how you doing? He said, you know, coach, this was not expected. This whole thing, this whole baseball thing has been a gift. He said, and I've been trying every day since I've been here to just be faithful to God's calling in my life. And my, I am not a baseball player. I'm trying to be a man of God who happens to play baseball. God had helped him overcome that fear of shame and condemnation that he experienced just four years earlier. That's what God can do for us when we allow him to do that. Psalm 46, 1 and 2 says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. God is our refuge. I'm not, a, I don't know what it's like to be a daughter, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> But I do know what it's like to be a father of daughters. I have two of them. And our youngest daughter, Casey, some of you may know her. She graduated last spring. She was uh, the little blonde one that would come up here every once in a while and, and probably talk high and, and laugh and smile and stuff. That was her. Um, <laughs> Casey was born with a genetic disease, genetic disorder that caused her to have issues with her digestive system. And we had managed it her whole life. But when she got to be 12 years old, her health took a serious turn for the worse. She got really sick. And she started losing weight. She couldn't keep anything down. She was throwing up a ton of green stuff, everything you can imagine. She was just, and she was really sick. And, and the doctors couldn't, they knew it was caused by the genetic disorder, but they didn't know what exactly was going on. Test after test after test. Nothing, nothing. Get sick, more sick. Get more sick. Get more sick. Get more sick. Finally, they took her in an ambulance right after Christmas down to Riley Hospital in Indy. And they had to run some tests. And they realized that they had to go in and do a surgery. And they were basing a surgery on information my wife had given them from a family study that had been done. And this surgery was going to be done on her for, I think, the third time ever. The other two people they had done the surgery on, one it hadn't worked, one it had. Coin flip. So we're trying to be strong. I'm trying to be dad. You know, dad's role, one of the most important role a dad can ever be called to is to raise their daughters right. Be there for their daughter. Never let your daughter have to deal with anything. That's my job. Protect her. So I was strong outwardly, but I could feel fear growing inside of me. And it came time for the surgery. And we're waiting in the surgery prep room. And she's being Casey. She's upbeat the whole time. And they came and got her. Now, as I remember the next moment is not how Casey remembers it. I remember the, the nurse coming to get her and putting her in a wheelchair and wheeling her away. And I remember looking at her and I swear I looked her in the eyes and everything about her eyes said, Daddy, you got to come with me. And I couldn't. Now, she says she wasn't nervous at all. But my perception was she needed me there and I couldn't be there. There was nothing I could do for my daughter. And I didn't know how it was going to turn out. So my wife, being the incredible woman that she is, she thought it was going to be a good idea for us to go to the chapel. She was going to be in surgery for a long time. Tried to go down to the hospital chapel and pray. I'll be honest with you. Wanted nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. Because I was mad. But knowing that it's also intelligent as a husband to not tell your wife no, I went to the prayer chapel with my wife and we prayed. 
And in the course of the prayer, my wife reminded me of Casey's life verse at that point that she had shared with her before she went into surgery. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, i got to be honest with you, it took a while of prayer for me to get out of my anger. I was pretty, pretty angry at God, and I let him know it. When I prayed, I was praying angry. I was mad that this is something that had happened with the person I loved as much as anybody in my, in my life, and there was nothing I could do about it. The fear of uncontrollable, the fear of the unknown, the fear of lack of control had completely overtaken my entire life at that point. I didn't know how to deal with it. But the Lord provided me with an amazing wife and she prayed me through it. And her faith prayed me through it. That verse got me through it. And I was reminded, I'm only Casey's earthly dad. And as much as I love her, she has a heavenly father who loves her even more. And even though she wasn't in my hands at that moment, she was in a lot better hands. She was in his hands and he was going to take care of her. So that fear of the unknown. Have you ever been afraid of the unknown? Have you ever been afraid of things that are out of your control? To the point where it made you angry? And then you took that anger out on others? And maybe even on God? Now, fear is such a basic human emotion that many of us live in a constant state in the grip of fear or of worry or of anxiety. You know, God told us to fear not hundreds of times in the Bible. And I think he did that because he knew we would all wrestle with fear sooner or later in our lives. So where does this fear come from? Well, one thing I can tell you it does not come from, it does not come from God. 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Fear doesn't come from God. Fear comes from doubt. Fear comes from a lack of faith. And quite simply and honestly, fear comes, fear is a tactic of Satan to keep us distracted and off course from the plans that the Lord has from each one of us. I look in this room and I see you and I think Satan trembles in fear from what's in this room. And because of that, he's coming after this room. And one of the ways he's going to come after this room is to fill you with fear. And to fill you with doubt on what God's calling is on your life. The Lord seldom feels farther away from us than when our heart is filled with fear. And Satan knows it. And Satan's going to try to take advantage of it. Many of us don't even realize how deeply fear is rooted in our everyday lives. Maybe you don't right now. But imagine what a life would feel like if you're truly free of Satan's attachment to fear. Are you struggling with fear right now in your life? Are you finding yourself today in an unexpected situation are you fearful about your future? Are you fearful about a relationship or relationships you're in right now? Are you fearful about the fact that you don't know what tomorrow might bring or next year might bring? Are you fearful of a group of people in your life who you're worried about them condemning you or judging you or worse, even maybe rejecting you? That challenge, that thing that you're facing it's not bigger 
than our God. He will never leave you. So I challenge you today, pursue freedom from fear. Ask God to deliver you from that fear. Accept. You've got to accept and take hold of the promise that God gives us and is a desire for all of us that we be filled with joy and peace and not fear and anxiety. Let the calm, strong assurance of this incredible promise settle into your heart and soul. God is always with you. You have nothing to fear. As the band comes to lead us in a closing song, I want to ask you to do a couple things as we're going through this closing song, if you would. As we sing, will you take the time as you're singing and maybe stop singing and invite the Lord into this moment with you and ask him to reveal to you right now if fear has gotten a foothold in your heart. Has fear gotten a foothold in your heart? And then if he reveals to you that it has, will you ask him to show you the lies that you've been believing about yourself? Ask him to forgive you of that. And then ask him to just fill you with his promise, fill you with his assurance, the promise that you, all of you, are his beloved child, who he desires to have a life free of fear and filled with his peace, joy, and love.